Let me tell you a story, podcast number 41. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how truth long it is. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Is your skin thick and wrinkly? And when you look in the mirror, you exclaim in horror, When did my soft skin become like an elephant's? Don't put up with that disgusting condition any longer, no! The next time you grab a gob of lotion, apply Pac-A-Derm, the derma cream that comes only in 55-gallon drums. Order your truckload today. Not responsible for unused portions or drowning victims who dunk their heads in the barrels. Use only as directed. Not recommended by respectable dermatologists anywhere. <laughs> Hi, this is Becky. <laughs> Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're starting a new feature today called Kid Chuckles. We'll share with you funny things our kids said when they were small and other kid quotes that our listeners send to us. So be sure to send us what your kids are saying or have said in the past, and we'll provide an email address at the end of the podcast. We're going to begin with some of the things our son Toby said when he was about three and a half, which is a great age for saying funny things. And I'll just read a few things that I recorded way back when. When Toby asked Steve if his shoes were right, and Steve said, no, wrong foot, Toby said, oh, you guys, you always say that. We spent uh, a weekend in the mountains, and while we were there, Toby pointed to the woods and asked if that was the fullest. When we said yes, he said, I don't like the fullest. It's too dark. And Monday morning, <laughs> he got busy and he made a Play-Doh for us that had a window in it. <laughs> um, an observation of a three-year-old. Toby said that if he cuts his hair off, he will be a grandpa. <laughs> Hey, hey. <laughs> and one more thought for springtime. Um, we're recording this in March, and uh, Toby said this uh, on, on a spring day a few years back. He said, I want sunshine with summer in it. I think we can all relate to that. In the last podcast, I started reading from Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, and here is chapter two, Black Dog Appears and Disappears. It was not very long after this that there occurred the first of the mysterious events that rid us at last of the captain, though not, as you will see, of his affairs. It was a bitter cold winter with long, hard frosts and heavy gales, and it was plain from the first that my poor father was little likely to see the spring. He sank daily, and my mother and I had the inn upon our hands, and were kept busy enough without paying much regard to our unpleasant guest. It was one January morning, very early, a pinching, frosty morning. 
The cove, all gray with hoarfrost, the ripple lapping softly on the stones, the sun still low and only touching the hilltops and shining far to seaward. The captain had risen earlier than usual and set out down the beach, his cutlass swinging under the broad skirts of the old blue coat, his brass telescope under his arm, his hat tilted back upon his head. I remember his breath hanging like smoke in his wake as he strode off, and the last sound I heard of him as he turned the big rock was a loud snort of indignation, as though his mind was still running upon Dr. Livesey. Well, mother was upstairs with father, and I was laying the breakfast table against the captain's return when the parlor door opened and a man stepped in on whom I had never set my eyes before. He was a pale, tallowy creature, wanting two fingers of the left hand. And, though he wore a cutlass, he did not look much like a fighter. I had always my eye open for seafaring men, with one leg or two, and I remember this one puzzled me. He was not sailorly, and yet he had a smack of the sea about him, too. I asked him what was for his service, and he said he would take rum. But as I was going out of the room to fetch it, he sat down upon a table and motioned me to draw near. I paused where I was with my napkin in my hand. Come here, Sonny, says he. Come nearer here. I took a step nearer. Is this here table for my mate, Bill? He asked with a kind of leer. I told him I did not know his mate, Bill, and this was for a person who stayed in our house, whom we called the captain. Well, said he, my mate Bill would be called the captain, as like as not. He has a cut on one cheek and a mighty pleasant way with him, particularly in drink. As my mate Bill will put it for argument like, that your captain has a cut on one cheek and will put it, if you like, that that cheek's the right one. Ah, uh, well, I told you. Now, is my mate Bill in this here house? I told him he was out walking. Which way, Sonny? Which way is he gone? And when I had pointed out the rock and told him how the captain was likely to return and how soon, and answered a few other questions, Ah, said he, this'll be as good as drink to my mate Bill. The expression of his face as he said these words was not at all pleasant, and I had my own reasons for thinking that the stranger was mistaken, even supposing he meant what he said. But it was no affair of mine, I thought, and besides, it was difficult to know what to do. The stranger kept hanging about just inside the inn door, peering round the corner like a cat waiting for a mouse. Once I stepped out myself into the road, but he immediately called me back, and as I did not obey quick enough for his fancy, a most horrible change came over his tallowy face, and he ordered me in with an oath that made me jump. As soon as I was back again, he returned to his former manner, half fawning, half sneering, patted me on the shoulder, told me I was a good boy, and he had taken quite a fancy to me. I have a son of my own, he said, as like you as two blocks, and he's all the pride of my art. But the great thing for boys is discipline, Sonny, discipline. Now, if you had sailed along of Bill, you wouldn't have stood there to be spoke to twice, not you. That was never Bill's way, nor the way of sich a sailor with him. And here, Sure enough, is my mate Bill with a spyglass under his arm, bless his old art, to be sure. You and me'll just go back into the parlor, Sonny, 
and get behind the door, and we'll give Bill a little surprise. Bless his art, I say again. So saying, the stranger backed along with me into the parlor and put me behind him in the corner so that we were both hidden by the open door. I was very uneasy and alarmed, as you may fancy, and it rather added to my fears to observe that the stranger was certainly frightened himself. He cleared the hilt of his cutlass and loosened the blade in the sheath, and all the time we were waiting there, he kept swallowing as if he felt what we used to call a lump in the throat. At last in strode the captain, slammed the door behind him without looking to the right or left, and marched straight across the room to where his breakfast awaited him. Bill, said the stranger, in a voice that I thought he had tried to make bold and big. The captain spun round on his heel and fronted us. All the brown had gone out of his face, and even his nose was blue. He had the look of a man who sees a ghost, or the evil one, or something worse, if anything can be. And upon my word, I felt sorry to see him, all in a moment, turned so old and sick. Come, Bill, you know me. You know an old shipmate, Bill, surely, said the stranger. The captain made a sort of gasp. Black dog, said he. And who else, returned the other, greeting more at his ease. Black dog, as ever was, come for to see his old shipmate, Billy, at the Admiral Benbow Inn. Ah, Bill, Bill, we have seen a sight of times, us two, since I lost them two talons, holding up his mutilated hand. Now look here, said the captain. You've run me down. Here I am. Well, then, speak up. What is it? That's you, Bill, returned Black Dog. You're in the right of it, Billy. I'll have a glass of rum from this dear child here, as I've took such a liking to, and we'll sit down, if you please, and talk square, like old shipmates. When I returned with the rum, they were already seated on either side of the captain's breakfast table. Black Dog, next to the door, and sitting sideways so as to have one eye on his old shipmate and one, as I thought, on his retreat. He bade me go and leave the door wide open. None of your keyholes for me, Sonny, he said, and I left them together and retired into the bar. For a long time, though I certainly did my best to listen, I could hear nothing but a low gabbling. But at last the voices began to grow higher, and I could pick up a word or two, mostly oaths, from the captain. No, 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 and an end of it, he cried once and again. If it comes to swinging, swing all, say I. Then all of a sudden there was a tremendous explosion of oaths and other noises. The chair and table went over in a lump. A clash of steel followed, and then a cry of pain, and the next instant I saw a black dog in full flight, and the captain hotly pursuing, both with drawn cutlasses, and the former streaming blood from the left shoulder. Just at the door, the captain aimed at the fugitive, one last tremendous cut, which would certainly have split him to the tine had it not been intercepted by our big signboard of Admiral Benbow. You may see the notch on the lower side of the frame to this day. That blow was the last of the battle. Once out upon the road... Black Dog, in spite of his wound, showed a wonderful clean pair of heels and disappeared over the edge of the hill in half a minute. The captain, for his part, stood staring at the signboard like a bewildered man. 
Then he passed his hand over his eyes several times and at last turned back into the house. Jim, says he, rum. And as he spoke, he reeled a little and caught himself with one hand against the wall. Are you hurt? cried I. Rum, he repeated. I must get away from here. Rum, rum. I ran to fetch it, but I was quite unsteadied by all that had fallen out, and I broke one glass and fouled the tap, and while I was still getting in my own way, I heard a loud fall in the parlor, and, running in, beheld the captain lying full length upon the floor. At the same instant my mother, alarmed by the cries and fighting, came running downstairs to help me. Between us we raised his head. He was breathing very loud and hard, but his eyes were closed and his face a horrible color. Dear, dearie me, cried my mother, what a disgrace upon the house, and your poor father sick. In the meantime, we had no idea what to do to help the captain, nor any other thought but that he had got his death hurt in the scuffle with the stranger. I got the rum, to be sure, and tried to put it down his throat, but his teeth were tightly shut and his jaws as strong as iron. It was a happy relief for us when the door opened and Dr. Livesey came in on his visit to my father. Oh, doctor, we cried, what shall we do? Where is he wounded? Wounded? A fiddlestick's end, said the doctor, no more wounded than you or I. The man has had a stroke, as I warned him. Now, Mrs. Hawkins, just you run upstairs to your husband and tell him, if possible, nothing about it. For my part, I must do my best to save this fellow's trebly worthless life. And Jim, you get me a basin. When I got back with the basin, the doctor had already ripped up the captain's sleeve and exposed his great sinewy arm. It was tattooed in several places. Here's luck, a fair wind, and Billy Bones his fancy were very neatly and clearly executed on the forearm, and up near the shoulder there was a sketch of a gallows and a man hanging from it done, as I thought, with great spirit. Prophetic, said the doctor, touching this picture with his finger. And now, Master Billy Bones, if that be your name, we'll have a look at the color of your blood, Jim, he said. Are you afraid of blood? No, sir, said I. Well then, said he, you hold the basin. And with that, he took his lancet and opened a vein. A great deal of blood was taken before the captain opened his eyes and looked mistily about him. First, he recognized the doctor with an unmistakable frown. Then his glance fell upon me, and he looked relieved. But suddenly his color changed, and he tried to raise himself, crying, Where's Black Dog? There is no Black Dog here, said the doctor, except what you have on your own back. You have been drinking rum. You have had a stroke, precisely as I told you, and I have just, very much against my own will, dragged you head foremost out of the grave. Now, Mr. Bones, that's not my name, he interrupted. Much I care, returned the doctor. It's the name of a buccaneer of my acquaintance, and I call you by it for the sake of shortness, and what I have to say to you is this. One glass of rum won't kill you, but if you take one, you'll take another and another, and I stake my wig if you don't break off short, you'll die. Do you understand that? Die, and go to your own place, like the man in the Bible. Come now, make an effort. 
I'll help you to your bed for once. Between us, with much trouble, we managed to hoist him upstairs and laid him on his bed, where his head fell back on the pillow as if he were almost fainting. Now, mind you, said the doctor, I clear my conscience. The name of rum for you is death. And with that, he went off to see my father, taking me with him by the arm. This is nothing, he said, as soon as he had closed the door. I have drawn blood enough to keep him quiet a while. He should lie for a week where he is. That is the best thing for him and you. But another stroke would settle him. Steve mentioned elephant skin in his little commercial at the beginning of this podcast. Well, I have a poem by our Wyoming poet friend Eugene Shea about elephants. He titled this Elephant Season. I was aiming to do a little poaching out north of the coal mine road. It's a few days short of deer season, and, of course, a game warden showed. What kind of game are you hunting, sir, that brings you way out here? Well, you don't hunt rabbits with an ought-six, and I sure ain't mentioning deer. I told him I was hunting elephants, those long-tusked African kind. There's not many left in Wyoming. They're getting dang hard to find. I can see he ain't buying my story. Don't stand there and tell me this lie. But if they were plentiful in Wyoming, I wouldn't have to hunt for them, would I? Nowadays, I'm famous all across the West. That scrape with the law is the reason. The first hunter ever jailed in Wyoming for hunting elephants out of season. And another, a little more serious, thought-provoking poem by Eugene. From Coalition to Confluence Two rivers merge and flow beyond, soon become one mighty stream. Two loves that merge may do the same, or so we deluded poets dream. But in truth, in life, this is not so. Two lives cannot merge complete. A coalition rather than a confluence, a marriage stands upon four feet. But with the passage of the years, like pebbles tumbled in a stream, so many things we share together, similar facets of a common dream. Sunshine and showers that on us fall, mellows bonds of matrimony as we go, until we find in our sunset years the seams of union scarcely show. To individuals when we wed, but youngster lovers could not know, flaming love would not last forever. Sunset love warms by a steady glow. Here's an excerpt from Danny Clark's work in progress. This chapter is titled, Incidental Contact. Had he not gently bumped me as we passed on the sidewalk, I'd not have noticed him at all. We were just two strangers making our way to our chosen destinations while moving in opposite directions. I was spun partially around as his shoulder caught mine. I looked up into his piercing blue eyes. Sorry, he said with sincerity in his tone. I should have been looking where I was going. I mumbled something like, no problem or okay, and kept walking toward the bus stop without interruption. I never take public transportation. 
I always avail myself of a driver or drive myself, but on this day, I'd chosen out of desperation to do so. I sat on the bench with an obese woman and her two screaming kids, a vagrant with a Vietnam ball cap, and a young black man who needed suspenders or a belt to keep his pants above his knees. Each looked uncomfortably at me as I took my seat. With more curiosity, I began to evaluate and make up stories for each of the characters waiting with me at the stop. Characteristically, I was mean-spirited and without mercy as I added fuel to the fire, which was my instant biography of each of them. The woman, obviously lazy and also on welfare, probably was not married and living with someone who'd give her still another dependent and a raise in her benefits before he moved on. She was hardly underfed and her two children didn't know the meaning of respect and never had heard the word discipline as they ran back and forth stepping on my new shoes. Of course... She was talking on the newest generation cell phone, oblivious to the antics of her kids. The old homeless-looking man looked at me with vacant eyes, eyes that lacked depth or expression. It was obvious that he, too, lived off the system, but unlike the woman, carried no extra weight. I was beginning to feel sorry for him until I noticed that somehow he could afford $5 per pack cigarettes and feed the old dog, which lay beside his feet. Choices, I thought. Make poor ones and let others pick up the slack for your mistakes and bad habits. He, no doubt, relied upon the taxpayer for his medical needs as well, while the rest of us struggled just to afford Obamacare. His clothes were tattered remnants of a military uniform that had long since been worn out. Standing beside him, holding an umbrella as if it were a weapon, as a well-dressed man of indeterminate age, with gold spectacles riding on his thin nose and a flat black hat covering the top of his head. A full bushy white beard and thinning hair sticking out from under it testified of his Jewish heritage. His skin was the color of milk, which allowed the blue veins underneath to show through. He stood away from the others, either from habit or from fear born of experience, but seemed to take no notice of them. A gangbanger, I thought looking at a 20-something young black man with baggy pants that badly needed a belt or suspenders. He probably gets by selling drugs and pimping his sisters, I thought. The flat bill of his ball cap was pointed ineffectively to one side in the current fashion, making him look like something out of an old comic strip. Where do all these misfits come from? I asked myself. As I waited and appraised my fellow travelers, I felt disdain and pride at my dress and my ability to succeed independently of others. When the bus pulled to a stop, I walked quickly forward and boarded first. As I dropped my fare into the waiting counter, I looked up directly into the blue eyes of the driver, the man I had passed on the street less than a half hour before. He smiled but said nothing as I seated myself in the first seat behind him. The young black boy, who boarded second, limped noticeably as he walked and hitched up his oversized pants while struggling up the two steps. "'Good morning, Jack,' said the driver. "'How's that leg today?' "'Doing fine, and thanks for asking,' he replied with a smile as he fumbled for his fare. "'Headed down to the food bank for a bit.' The homeless man stepped aside and let the large woman and her two children board next. When she thanked him, he touched the bill of his cap and smiled sardonically, but said nothing. 
She struggled and finally seated herself in the seat directly across from me with her children forced to sit behind her. I could see the driver's eyes watching her before he spoke. Looks like the little ones are growing up, Ruth. How's your lupus doing today? Doing as good as can be expected, I guess, she answered. The doc has me on a new medicine, which seems to help, but puts about five pounds a week on me. And Tom, the driver asked, is he still in Afghanistan? Yeah, she answered sadly. We miss him a lot, but he's doing what he thinks is right. Outside, the homeless man was helping the aged Jew onto the bus. They exchanged no words, but gave each other knowing looks. Good morning, Rabbi, the smiling driver said. Shalom. He paid his fare, nodded to the driver, mouthed the words, I'm sorry, and seated himself behind me. Odd. I thought that he would say such a thing, but not vocalize whatever was on his mind that seemed so important. Finally, having let the others board before him, the old vet gingerly climbed the two steps and stood searching his pockets for the fare. No need, Bill. Your debt has already been paid, the driver said softly. Where are you headed this morning? Down to the VA, he answered, smiling, before he moved toward the open seat beside me. Is this taken, he asked. I moved my top coat to my lap and stammered, No, no, go ahead. Inside, I was seething with anger, wondering why this man had chosen to sit beside me when other seats were so obviously open. As his dog curled up at our feet, I promised myself that this was the last time I'd be a part of this circus, even if it meant hiring a limo to take me downtown every day to my new job. It felt as if the route had been especially tailored to each passenger's destination rather than one which would most profit the bus company. It seemed like an eternity before the last of them finally disembarked, and I was left alone with the driver who headed toward the brokerage firm where I was eager to begin my day. Will I see you tomorrow? The driver asked pleasantly as the bus stopped and he opened the door. I had fully intended to say something smart, like, over my dead body, but rather returned his smile and answered, Yes, I think you will. May I ask you a question? He continued to smile, nodded, and said, Anything. How do you determine the fare? I asked. He smiled with relish when he answered, The fare has already been paid. Each contributes as they are able, and each chooses their own destination. I was puzzled by his answer, and even more so about how a company could stay in business without a more rigid financial framework. Tomorrow, then, I said as I stepped onto the sidewalk. Tomorrow, he echoed my words. I walked into the office right on time, hung up my coat, poured myself a cup of coffee, and sat down at my desk. In the background, the din of the day had already begun with the sound of multiple voices communicating important information to a multitude of clients. My phone rang. Good morning. This is Thomas. How may I help you? I said a little too automatically. Thomas the doubter? The voice asked playfully. No, Thomas Jefferson, the framer of the Constitution, I said glibly, wondering at who may begin a Monday morning call to a brokerage house in such a way. Thomas, are you a broker? The unfamiliar voice asked. Are you a good one whom I can trust? I think so, I answered a little hesitantly. May I ask who this is? We met this morning on the bus, was his answer, but we were not formally introduced. 
My name is James. I sat next to you. This is a setup, I thought instantly. Some practical joke from one of my coworkers who was laughing now at my expense. How did you get my number? I asked, raising my voice with the full intention of hanging up. The bus driver gave it to me, James answered. And where did he get it? I challenged. I didn't tell him my name. You left your wallet on the bus and your card was in it, he said simply. He asked me to contact you and make arrangements to give it back. When I reached for my wallet and found it was gone, my heart sank. Everything important to me was in that wallet. Pictures, money, credit cards, everything. When and where, I asked before I considered how abrupt and rude my question was. I mean, what is convenient for you and where can we meet? I asked as I amended my question. How about tomorrow morning on the bus where we met this morning? He suggested. The day dragged. I had to borrow money for lunch and then bummed a ride home from my secretary. I watched television without interest and went to bed early but was unable to sleep. I was too busy worrying about my wallet and money. Why hadn't I just offered the old man a reward and met him right after work and been done with it? I must have finally gotten to sleep because I dreamed about the bus, the driver, and each of the riders in great detail, especially James, the old homeless guy. I was surprised that I felt rested in spite of the short number of hours which I had slept. I showered, dressed, and fixed myself a bite to eat before checking the paper for the weather and stock market results for the previous day. At about 7 o'clock, I locked my apartment door and walked the four blocks to the bus stop. It was empty. There was no one waiting for the 8 o'clock bus. Not a soul except me. About 10 minutes later, the heavy woman and her two children arrived and sat beside me. I'm Ruth, she said pleasantly while extending her hand. And these two are our boys, Billy and Bobby. I took her hand and noticed the wedding ring that I had missed previously and asked about her condition. I have lupus, she said matter-of-factly. Are you familiar with the disease? I admitted I was not, but asked her to tell me about it. It's an autoimmune disease which affects each person quite differently, she declared. Mine currently affects my blood pressure, my lung function, and causes swelling and weight gain. It makes it hard to exercise and keep up with the kids. I felt a little guilty at my previous assessment of her. Is your husband due to return soon? I asked, remembering what the driver had said. Tom? No. Tom is on his third tour, she said. God willing, it'll be another three months before we see him again. We chatted for a few moments before our young black friend of the previous morning joined us. Good morning, Jack, I said, surprising myself. How's it going today? Doing just fine. Had a good day yesterday. Inspect another like it today, he answered, smiling broadly. What do you do? I asked, curious, but not wanting to seem nosy. He hesitated for a moment as though he was surprised I'd asked, then said, I keep busy helping my mama out round the home, working a little after school at the market, and volunteering down at the shelter. I must have looked surprised and impressed because he said, Ain't no big thing, just doing what needs done. I told him about myself, and we visited a few more minutes before the old Jewish man took his usual spot. I started to move toward him, but Ruth grabbed my arm discreetly and whispered, He can't talk. 
the Germans cut out his tongue during the war. As I looked at his bony hands and arms, I could see the remainder of a number tattooed on it. My heart filled with sorrow at the pain he must have endured, and I wanted to hug him and tell him how I felt, but did not. Finally, as though he had been waiting until I'd met his friends, James rounded the corner and walked up to the bus stop. He looked much the same as the previous day, but the presence of a smile seemed somehow to put life back into his dark eyes. Thomas, he said, extending his right hand and smiling. Doubting Thomas. I'm James. We spoke yesterday. Surprisingly, he was quite articulate and commanded a presence that spoke of authority and power. Colonel James Taylor, retired, he said quite formally, but Jim to my friends. He was a little taller than I had remembered and quite a bit stronger than I have thought, judging from his firm handshake. We assessed each other for a moment. Then he said, I commanded the 101st Airborne in Nam from 66 to 68, was captured and sat out the rest of the war in a hooch with some of my men. I volunteer at the VA when I'm up to it. Once again, my heart went out to this stranger as I felt both his pain and his strength. Thank you for your service, I said almost too automatically. My father was a pilot there. He was shot down and killed in June of 1970. I know, he said. Our driver told me. I began to object just as the bus pulled up and Jim handed me my wallet. The events of the previous day were duplicated, except that I stood back until the others had been seated before stepping onto the bus. I took two twenties from my wallet and put them in the toll box and accepted a smile from the driver before sitting beside Jim. As the bus began to move, I lowered my voice and asked Jim, You said the driver told you about my father. How would he know anything about my father? He smiled wickedly, then answered, You'll have to ask him. We're in Chapter 9 of Winds of Wyoming, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm going to back up a paragraph to get started here. Kate laughed. Maybe Wyoming men weren't so bad after all. Maybe, just maybe, she'd overreacted to the barn incident. She dropped the bottom of the pole into the loop, trying not to think about how much her hands hurt. With every ounce of strength she had, she set the pole upright and reached for the top wire. Clint waved at her. You don't need to lock it up, Kate, unless you see bison headed your way. Just hang on a few minutes. Won't take us long to load this critter. Now you tell me. She frowned when they tossed the calf onto the metal truck bed, thinking they could have at least put a blanket or a tarp under it. But they were the ranchers. She was just the ignorant city slicker. The men latched the tailgate and looked around, scanning the herd. She followed their gaze. Only one cow with a slightly extended tail appeared interested in their activities. They turned their attention to the dead bison, swatting with their hats at the flies that swarmed above her huge body. Kate couldn't hear what they said as they examined a dark spot behind the cow's shoulder, but she could see them shake their heads with disgust. So, the buffalo had been shot, and smart mouse Cyrus was wrong about crime only occurring in big cities. She rested her forehead against the pole, wondering what Cyrus would say if he knew he worked with a real-life criminal. She straightened. No, 
She was not a criminal. Those days were behind her. But what if... She stared across the pasture. What if she'd brought crime with her? Maybe Ramsey shot the buffalo. It was a crazy idea, but that could have been his way of getting back at Mike for running him off last night. Mike stood. Open up, Kate. We're ready to drive out. Old Blue bounced by. Kate peeked at the calf. Mouth open and eyes so wide they were mostly white, the traumatized creature looked ready to hyperventilate. Mike helped her close the gate. His shoulder against hers made her stomach quiver. She reminded herself, twice, that Tara had said she and Mike were almost engaged. He pointed at the cow. See the bison with the extended tail? She nodded. She sees us. She hears us. She smells us. The position of her tail says she's interested in us, but only mildly curious at the moment. The more irritated bison become, the more rigid and higher their tails get. If they're really angry, their tails stand straight up. That's when they're most dangerous, when they might charge a perceived enemy. Do you think she'll get mad when you remove the dead cow? I don't know if we'll remove the cow or bury her. Depends on how long she's been dead. But it'll be at least a half hour before we return. The other cow will probably move on by then. Kate leaned against the tailgate, studying the calf which had found its breath and was wailing again. Would it be okay if I pet him or her? He smirked. It's a she. Go ahead. That'll help her get used to humans. He got into the truck. Better have Mom make some phone calls. She stepped onto the running board for a better reach. The calf ogled her bug-eyed and cried even louder. She touched his leg, which made it tremble and twitch. She moved to the other side of the truck bed where it couldn't see her and gently rubbed its side. This time, the calf didn't react as violently to her touch. She stroked its soft, rust-colored fur. You're going to be okay, little girl. We'll get you some food. The dusty animal smell made her sneeze, but she muffled the sound in the crook of her elbow, for the calf's sake. Ignoring Clint's amused expression, she listened to Mike radio his mom. Moments later, Laura radioed back to say the department had a deputy on duty not far from the ranch who'd be there pronto. Mike told her that he and Clint would wait for the deputy and Kate would drive the calf to the barn. Kate tried not to react at the mention of an officer. She had nothing to hide, but with Ramsey in the area spreading rumors about her, she couldn't be too cautious. Should I drive the calf up there now? She must be really hungry. First, Mike said, I'll help you get a feel for the gears. This truck has its touchy spots. He stepped out of the cab, and Kate crawled inside. He got in beside her, leaving the passenger door open. Push the clutch in with your foot and grab the gear shift. She could barely touch the clutch with her toe. This cab is a bit bigger than my Honda. He showed her how to move the seat forward. She pressed the clutch and clasped the gear shift. He covered her hand with his. Again, her insides quavered, despite the distraction of the pain in her palm. It's probably the same pattern as your car. I'll move you through the beginning at first gear. Just hold the clutch solid and ride through the stubborn cogs. He pulled the knob toward them. Their arms moved together from first to second, second to third, third to fourth, and then reverse. Kate tried hard to concentrate, but his hand cradling hers made it hard for her to focus. Mike sat back. Now you try it. She felt her cheeks grow warm. Even though the pattern was similar, it felt different. Or maybe it was because he unsettled her. Could we go through that one more time? 
With all the willpower she could muster, she followed his lead and engaged each gear without grinding. Great, he released her hand. You're on your own. See you at the ranch. He started to get out, but stopped. I better show you how to operate the radio in case the calf gives you trouble, or you get a flat. After he explained the CB and was about to get out of the truck, she touched his arm. I have a question. Shoot. Do you think it'd be all right? She looked away. This is kind of silly. Why don't you let me be the judge? She rubbed her fingertip over the hard rim of the steering wheel. I was wondering if it would be okay to name the calf uh, Trudy after my dog because of the reddish fur. His smile was gentle. That's fine with me, except... She waited. Except that bison, baby bison, mature quickly. No matter how much they're around humans, they can never be truly tamed. In a few short months, that little calf will become big and dangerous. I'd hate for you to get hurt or become attached to her, then discover she's not much of a pet. That's really kind of you. It's hard to breathe with him so close. I understand she'll eventually have to be returned to the herd or to eat grass or hay or whatever buffalo eat. The calf moaned even louder than before. He laughed. Shouldn't have mentioned food. He stepped out and closed the door. Before she started the engine, he rested his forearm on the window frame. Mom is an old hand at bottle feeding, whether it's puppies or kittens or colts or calves, and she names them all. Even if I objected naming this one, she'd overrule me, so go for it. Kate drove down the hill in first gear to keep from jostling the calf. Mike was considerate and caring. Tara seemed wrong for him. But she didn't know either person very well. At the bottom of the hill, she carefully edged the truck onto the road, one wheel at a time, and turned toward the ranch headquarters. Hearing no complaints from the calf, she shifted gears and picked up speed. Then there was Clint. She grinned, thinking of the ranch foreman's quick, easy smile and his crazy sense of humor. She navigated a mud hole. It had been a long time since she'd met a considerate man. But she couldn't fall for every decent guy she encountered outside prison gates. Our friend Rich Madison recorded one of his blogs for us from today's word, Daily Wisdom for the Rushed Life. This one is called Wisdom Quest. Wisdom Quest. As a young boy, I remember going with a beekeeper out to his stacks of white boxes. We would heat up sticks in a metal can and spray the smoke into the beehives. Soon thereafter, we would draw out racks full of honey. I remember even today the incredible sweet taste of the honeycomb, so reviving to the physical body. Solomon applied the taste of honey to sweetness in your soul, accomplished through the gaining of wisdom. He said, Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there is a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Gaining wisdom is important to living life effectively. A wise action you may start with is to find an older person whom you trust to come alongside you and train you in gathering the ingredients that will produce wisdom in you. Remember that knowledge and experience are necessary to develop wisdom. And 
You have to strive for a life of love, hope, and joy, because in the experiencing of them, you will learn wisdom if you keep your eyes open. How wise do you want to be? Who could help you in your quest for wisdom? Thanks, Rich, for contributing and for reading that and saving my voice. Appreciate that. <laughs> be sure to send a kid quote to us at story at beckyliles.com, and I'm going to sign off. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.